take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll start by just reading verses 27 through 31, I think, of 1 Corinthians 12. Those are the final verses. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 31, and then we'll pause. Now Paul has been talking about spiritual gifts in the body of Christ and each person's role in the body of Christ. How we're supposed to be serving one another and ministering to one another, each one according to the gifts that God has given us. And he concludes this thought in verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, after that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts and yet I show you a more excellent way. Now this is not Paul's way of changing the subject to talk about love. That's not what this is. Matter of fact, if you were to just turn your page and look at what comes in chapter 14, you'll see we'll return very specifically to spiritual gifts and how they should work in the church. So Paul is not with chapter 13, what's often referred to as the love chapter, closing the book on spiritual gifts and moving on to another subject. He is instead asking the church to see spiritual gifts in light of a higher calling. And that higher calling is love. Love is something that every human being has some sort of innate understanding of because we're made in the image of God and in His likeness because we come from a God who is love Himself. And so the capability, the capacity to love is something that we feel, in some sense, nearly all the time. It can be love for things, love for objects, love for goals, love for activities, certainly love for people. It's present and yet, Apart from the scriptures, we do not have a key or a legend for really explaining it or understanding it. Now, the world tries to explain it. Um, psychology would explain it as, you know, mechanisms of mostly environment and some evolution. Um, and they try to scientifically explain chemical reactions when we experience various emotions, to scientifically explain relational connections we make to people around us. But all the definitions of psychology ultimately seem to fall short of giving us a comprehensive answer to explain what we feel that is often inexplicable towards other people and other things. The arts try to explain love. Um, movies, books, paintings, songs. How many of them in some way touch upon this really basic human part of us that everyone experiences and brushes up against and yet 
struggles to understand and control and to make sense of at various times in their lives. Um, I'll probably reveal a little bit more about myself, but I was watching a, a science fiction movie a couple weeks ago uh, that I've watched probably a dozen times. My movie catalog is not very broad. It's narrow and on repeat, usually. When I, so most of the time, because when I watch a movie, it's with the intention of taking a nap. I don't know if you're similar, but it's not with the intention of, you know, getting out the popcorn and really... But there's a, there's a science fiction movie that I like that came out a few years ago, Interstellar. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before. Uh, and I won't, I certainly won't give you the whole premise, but basically it's a science fiction movie about this guy who goes into outer space and his love for his daughter is described as the mechanism by which the human race saves itself. Love is, there's actually lines in the movie that describe love as the strongest power in the universe. This is a science fiction movie. This is not a, this is not what I lovingly refer to as a chick flick. This is a, this is a movie, this is a movie for guys. This is a movie for, for those who think about Star Trek and phasers and, you know, beaming me up to the far ends of the galaxy. And, and the, the central theme is that love is the strongest impulse in the universe. If that is not a culture struggling to explain something that we can't fully understand apart from God's word, then I don't know what is. Love is strong. We might make the case theologically that it is the strongest impulse in the universe, but try explaining that in a science fiction movie and you're going to fall short. You can't create a script with the explanation for this. Only God can, who is the author of love. I watched a documentary a day or two ago that I'd seen years ago. It's about two football coaches that I find interesting characters, football coaches, Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick, if you want to follow football. These are guys who had a long career together, and then they broke apart, and these are pretty tough guys. These are not... Uh, Highly emotional guys. If you, I mean, football coaches in general have kind of a connotation of not being real emotional, sentimental people. Uh, whether that's true in every case, that's kind of the connotation. These guys are certainly not sentimental, sentimental or emotional people. They they they're pretty hard-headed guys, and and they hadn't been in a room together for decades on camera, and they were talking about what caused their football relationship to split, and they'd taken shots at each other in the media. But the context was that. Parcells had been a mentor to Belichick for decades. I mean, a real mentor. But in a large way, Bill Belichick, who I think is generally considered one of, if not the greatest coach in NFL history, uh, was brought along professionally and was enabled professionally by Parcells before they went off. Anyway, I'm telling you all this to understand. They set these two guys down in the room, these big, two tough, old football coaches. And they start to ask them these questions, a reporter does, about their relationship and about what happened, and they go through the history. And it's kind of intriguing in a way because these guys are not known for talking to reporters at all. If you want to see comedy, Google a Bill Belichick press conference. Like, they'll ask questions and he just doesn't answer. It's, it's very, it's funny to me, it's, it's interesting. But they start asking them then about something very personal, which of course they're not going to answer. But they do start to talk about it. And the interview kind of comes to the conclusion that the reporter has the audacity to ask, you know, there's a lot of things in this relationship. Is there a love in this relationship? 
And there's this silence. It's these two, one guy in his probably late 60s, very early 70s, another in his 80s, football coaches, men of men in our culture, trying to answer this reporter who's asking them if they love one another. And it's an awkward pause of like five or six seconds. And then finally, Bill Belichick says, yeah, I think so, for me, there is. And then Bill Parcells nods and says, yeah, definitely there is. And then to break the awkwardness of it, Bill Belichick says, I mean, I'm not going to kiss him on the cheek when we're done here. <laughs> Why do two people care whether or not two football coaches love each other? <laughs> Why is that even a question? Why does it come up? Perhaps because we know that love is the most powerful impulse in the, in the universe. It, there's something to it that is uh, inexplicable outside of God's word. This morning, I want to ask you, as we go through a lot of scripture together, to pray and to think. Those are the two applications this morning. To pray and to think. We're going to read about love and for those of you who are really thinking through it, some of it's going to be really, really challenging to think through, if you're actually thinking through it. If you're just sitting back, kind of taking it as information, probably not. You just take it as information. If you think through it, it will be challenging. And I think the only way to grow in this is to pray and ask for God to help you become a loving person, as the Bible commands us to be, where I think every one of us can grow and to think about how that might look in your life. You have to think when you go through the text like this. You have to ask yourself internally the questions. Do I love like I should? Where am I doing this and where am I not? If you won't pray and think about this, I don't see how you'll grow in it. I really don't. You have to evaluate. Now this is in theme with Romans 12, 1 and 2, which I bring up weekly it seems at this point, which exhorts us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. You need to think about this. Before I read in 1 Corinthians 13, I want to share some other scripture with you. You can turn to them or not turn to them. Uh, I don't want you turning to them to be a distraction for you if you are not very you know, adept in finding things quickly in the Bible. But if you can, then I'd encourage you to do it. Turn to John 13. From John 13, I'm going to read uh, verse 1 and then verses 12 through 17 and finally a few verses at the end. I'll tell you when I'm making the transitions. This is Jesus on his way to the cross, essentially. It is um, at the... The Lord's Supper, it is the, the night before, the night he will be arrested, the night before his crucifixion. This is Jesus and um, it says in John 13, 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. Just think about that for a second. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he was going to leave this world and depart to the Father. He knows I'm getting ready to die. 
I am not going to spend any more time with these disciples. I'm not going to walk with them anymore. I'm not going to be on this earth until I come again. This is it. That's the, that's the tone here. And then this is the description. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now that is something to have put on your tombstone when you die. That's not a bad, char that's not a bad characterization to aspire to. That, you know, here lies John Murphy, you know, who knowing that his time in this world was short, loved his own until the very end. Loved them when they were in the world and loved them to the very end of his life. That's not a bad, that's not a bad thing to have written on your tombstone, is it, John? You can do worse than that. And then this description of Jesus' love is, is in this, the preparation for what he's going to do. And he gets down in John chapter 13 and he starts to wash their feet. And he, you know, he strips himself down except for, you know, minimal cloth and covering like the servants would wear. And he starts to, with a basin and a towel, starts to scrub their dirty, dusty feet off in preparation for the meal and for the evening. And so he washes their feet. And then this is what he says in verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who, sent, who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So he says, I'm doing this as an example of your service to one another. And if I'm doing it, and I'm your master, and you call me Lord, then you have to do it. And then he has the confrontation with Judas at the table, at the meal, and Judas departs. And pick it up in verse 33 of John 13. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You hear it repeated three times there? Now, if you've given instruction, or if you've been a teacher, we have some teachers here, you know, we have some people training to be teachers here, you know that uh, teachers often don't repeat themselves uh, for no good reason. And what they repeat is usually the important stuff that needs that they feel, at least in the moment, needs to be said. They could be wrong about that. <laughs> if you just go to a basketball game, I've been to a few of those, the coaches often repeat the same exact instruction about ten times because they can't get the people on the court to do it. You know, uh, you may hear that. And here Jesus repeats three times his command. And that's what you should remember this says. His command. Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. As I have loved you. That you also love one another. Just like I have. Love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples. This will be the defining characteristic 
of Christianity, of being disciples of Christ, if you love one another. This is the way Jesus loved his disciples to the very end. He emphasized to them three times, bookends with an example, an illustration of foot washing in between. <coughs> that the, the goal, the command, the purpose of their discipleship, their redemption, their salvation was meant to accomplish this love one for another. It is a command. It is an identification. I'm commanding you to do this. He provides an example. Do it as I have loved you. And he says, it will be the badge by which the world knows that you are my disciples. It will be your identification too. Love for one another. In 1 John chapter 4, let me just read these four verses to you. From This is 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Listen, this is John writing. Same John who was there that night with Christ. Now towards the very end of his life, writing to compel Christians to consider what Jesus had said that evening in John 13. Now listen. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. That's why the world doesn't understand this. They are playing around the edges of something that is not merely human. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love. He gives one definition, which is Christ's example. Then another definition. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to, fifth time in this morning's reading, love one another. It is essential that in the first category of understanding what we're supposed to do with love, we get, we settle, we build upon the foundation that Christians are to love Christians. They are to love one another. Jesus emphasized it. Jesus called attention to it. His disciples knew it. Christians must love Christians. This is no optional idea. One of the ways you need to pray and think about this is to ask yourself, is my Christian faith marked by the reality, by the display, by the, the genuine love that I have for God's people? And that's where you need to pray and think. You should not take any commands from Jesus lightly. This is a command from Jesus. Sometimes people don't think of this like that. And they should. The Bible says it plain as day over and over again. They think of love as just a feeling or a sentiment that if you're a good Christian, you'll just kind of naturally have. Well, you may... 
But this is more than just an outcropping of having faith in Jesus Christ. This is more than a consequence. This is a command. A new command. One might say the command for Christians. That you love one another. Now I want to call your attention to a minute to another category, another direction to which love is supposed to be aimed in your life. One is towards God's people. That should be a target. That should be a destination of love in your life. Another is God himself. And I just want to read to you four verses from the law of God. I mean, we could get this from probably hundreds of verses in the Bible. But I just want to read to you four verses where God is instructing Israel in his law in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. And this comes up again and again and again. Again, the law of God. Command. Not a consequence. Not just something that's going to happen on its own. A command to be obeyed. This is Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You shall love the Lord. This is what Jesus will ultimately call the greatest commandment. Right? Think about that. The greatest commandment according to Jesus is a commandment to love. Tell me that that doesn't make love the most important and strongest impulse in the universe. And the object of your love is to be completely with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength your creator who gave you life and purpose and who would redeem you for all eternity. Deuteronomy 7.9 Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Deuteronomy 10.12 And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Do you ever wonder that? God, what do you want from me? What am I supposed to do? Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Deuteronomy 11.1 1. Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep His charge his statutes, His judgments, and His commandments always. Obedience to the commands of God are not supposed to be... Obedience isn't supposed to be coming from just sheer obligation or some transactional thing. If I obey God's commands, then I'll get something out of it or I'll avoid some destruction. No, therefore you shall love the Lord your God and thus keep His charge, His statutes, and His commandments. So one direction that God's love in our lives coming out of us should be targeted towards is His people. And that is a command. It is not an option. We must love Christians. And we must love God. A third direction that we're explicitly pointed to in the Bible, in the law, 
is that we must love the stranger. At various times, this could be a stranger of a different race, a foreigner in your land, likely an unbeliever in Israel. You must love the stranger. Here's Leviticus 19 verse 34. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 10.19 Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So, one direction our love is to be focused is to Christians. Another direction our love is to be focused is toward God. Another direction our love is to be focused is towards strangers, people who are different, people who are not of us, people who are not from us. This culminates in Leviticus 19 where we get a fourth direction if you want to split hairs. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor but not bear sin because of him. In other words, when someone wrongs you, you can deal with the wrong, rebuke the neighbor, but not hate them, not bear sin in your response to their wronging you. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor. So if you want to say, well, the stranger is in a very specific category, then we get the much broader category of whoever my neighbor is. And who does Jesus say that our neighbor is? To answer that question when he's put to the test, we know we must love our neighbor, but who is my neighbor? He tells a story, and the story is that of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan who is of a different race and a different people, of a different religious leaning, a different religious sect than the Jews would acknowledge was even appropriate. Who showed love to a Jewish man of another race, of another people, a tribal enemy who was wounded on the road and then Jesus says, you tell me who the man's neighbor was. If it seems as we go down this path here as if there's almost no group of people that were not commanded to love. Right. Right. And bear in mind now, everything I have read so far has been a command. Many of these from the law of God itself. A command. Not, well, you know, if you're doing well, this is how you'll behave. These last two punctuated by the phrase at the end where God says, I am Yahweh. Do this, I am Yahweh. Do this, I am Yahweh. Like a, a dad who's telling his children, you have to do this. I am your dad. This is not optional. I am your father. Like a coach in some dispute with a, a player. You have to do this. I'm the coach. You have to do this. Do this. This is a command. I am Yahweh, the one and only living God. I am the one you will face when you die. You'll give an account to me. Do this. Some 
time in between the law of God and the people of Israel and the Old Testament that we're familiar with and the hundreds of years before Christ, there had grown out of these commands a rabbinical tradition that the text was really teaching love your neighbor but hate your enemy. In other words, perhaps there is a group of people not included in strangers, neighbors, and brothers of the same faith, and those would be your enemies. Those who are not merely strangers, but who are out to conquer you and do you harm. And Jesus deals with this in Matthew 5. Now, Casey didn't get all the way to verse 43 when he read this morning, but we'll, I'll take you there. Here is Jesus in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. Listen to him deal with the only rabbinical loophole they had found to this command to love. And he shuts it. Just slams the door on the loophole. Listen to this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, which is a quote from the law, and hate your enemy, which is nowhere in the law. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You don't think God has enemies? You don't think God has people who hate him? Who slander him? who persecute his people, who want to see an end to his work in the world. But he causes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust and the rain to fall on the lands of the righteous and the wicked. Gravity applies to those who would curse God to his face the same as it applies to you and I. Love your enemies that you may be like your father, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For if you love those, verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do that. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your father in heaven is perfect. God's perfection is at least in Jesus' sermon illustration here characterized as his love, his unbelievable inhuman love. What kind of love? If you're in 1 Corinthians 13 still, let's just dip our toe in the water here. 1 Corinthians 13. Paul begins saying, though I speak... Remember, this is the more excellent way. This is better than spiritual gifts. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now, the word love there is the word agape in the Greek, and it's going to be used over and over again in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Agape, if you're taking notes, A-G-A-P-E is the transliteration from the Greek word, agape. Now the Greeks had different words for love. They had a word for love that they used to describe um, sensual love, passional, physical love. And that word was eros in the Greek. We get our word erotic from it. 
Now, we don't mean erotic. We use the word erotic differently, but that passionate kind of love. They had different words for love. So when Paul is writing here on love, he has a choice to make on what word he will use. Now the word he chooses, agape, is and was a Greek word, but it was not commonly used in the first century. They had six or seven words, which we would all roll up into one English word, love. This one was rarely used. At best, in more ancient literature, in previous Greek literature, when the Greek language was in the Greek Empire, the word was used as almost an altruistic love. In other words, a love that looks outside yourself and seeks the best for others. So he chooses this one, agape. And this word agape, agape really becomes the Christian word for love in the Greek because it's not really used in the rest of the culture. Christianity basically hijacks this word, agape. And it makes it the word to identify the love of God that Christians are supposed to have. Now in the 4th or 5th century BC, the Bible is translated into Latin. You may have heard of the Latin Vulgate. And they have to choose a word because a new language. What do we translate agape to? And Jerome, who was doing the work, translated it as caritas in Latin. For which we get our English word charity. Much of the English, is our language is derived from Latin. Charity. And so in the King James Version of the Bible, you'll read 1 Corinthians 13. And you don't read the four-letter word love. You read the word charity over and over and over again because when it was translated in the you know 17th century when it was translated it was translated with the most closely identified English word to the Latin but this is not charity as we think of it in fact verse 3 is going to wipe out any idea that this might be simply benevolence or charity it goes way beyond that and the English word love is the only acceptable English translation. Listen to what one Bible commentator writes of this, what Paul's writing here. Whereas the best concept of love before the New Testament was that of a love for the best one knows, the Christians thought of love as the quality we see displayed in the cross. You, you can't understand Christian love apart from the cross. This is where God's love is displayed. He goes on. It is a love for the utterly unworthy. A love which proceeds from a God who is love. It is a love lavished upon others without a thought of whether they are worthy to receive it or not. It proceeds rather from the nature of the lover than from any merit in the beloved. The Christian who has experienced God's love to him while he was yet a sinner has been transformed by the experience. And now he sees men in a measure as God sees them. He sees them as the objects of God's love, as those for whom Christ died. Accordingly, his attitude towards them is one of love, of self-giving agape. He comes to practice the love 
which seeks nothing for itself, but only the good of the loved one. It is this love which Paul unfolds. Uh, Every once in a while when you're reading a Bible commentary, you can tell that the commentary, the, the commenter has gotten away from just explaining one text at a time and has been filled with the Holy Spirit and has decided to write a small little treatise on something that he can't simply gloss over. And here Leon Morris completely loses sight of the fact that he's supposed to be explaining verse 1 and just, bam, he can't help himself. Because he knows that the Christian sees love as portrayed by Jesus at the cross. And all the love that Jesus portrays at the cross towards other people is unmerited, not worthy. No one did anything good enough to deserve Jesus' love for them at the cross. No one was deserving of Jesus' love by birthright. You may love your children because they are of you. <laughs> But we were strangers and enemies of God, adopted into his family by what Jesus performed. The Christian's understanding of love then is unlike any other understanding of love that's out there. It sees it as unmerited. It's, and you say, now hold on. There are examples in life of people who have for seemingly no explicable reason decided to bestow great love upon someone else. Yes, those examples exist, but again, the Christian love goes beyond that and sees all men of worthy of that sort of demonstration. Not just a person here or a person there, but all men. Because after all, who... Was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross sufficient to save? All men. Jesus' offering for your life on the cross wasn't merely sufficient to save you. It was enough to save everyone. And so the love of a Christian has no loopholes. It is selfless. It's loving others as we would love ourselves. It's Dying as Jesus died. It's serving as Jesus served. And there is nothing else like it in the world. Now in verse 1. Let's just do verse 1 today. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. The word tongues there is languages and is as broad as possible. Probably referencing the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues, which we'll get to in chapter 14. But broader than that. Sounding brass is like a bronze gong. That's the historical reference. And these gongs were religious. These clanging cymbals, clashing cymbals, literally, they were religious. They were used in the worship of Dionysus. They were to worship the pagans that the Corinthians were familiar with. They were beaten in harmony and in rhythm. And when they were beaten, they would echo. 
they would reverberate. You know, you hit a big gong. I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. The word sounding is the Greek word echo. We get the word echo from it. An echoing, reverberating noise that does no one any good at all. Just noise. I could stand up and speak in all sorts of languages. I could stand up and speak with the fluency. I could speak with the beauty of angels. As if I were a messenger from heaven. And if I don't have love, Paul says, it is just white noise. It is nothing. Here is the vast emptiness of false religion, false Christians, false Christianity. Lots of noise. And lots of lights and lots of stagecraft and lots of showmanship and absolutely nothing of power and substance. Just noise. I won't go any further this morning. But I want you to think about that this week. And I want you to think about this command which leaves no loopholes in your life for loving others. And I want you to think about it as a command. Not a suggestion. Not something that will happen on its own. But a command to be obeyed. Next week we'll come together and go deeper into 1 Corinthians 13. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, it is with great joy that we can say that we love you. Give us a love for others. Not a love as the world knows it, not a sentiment, not an emotion, not an act of charity or kindness, but a genuine Holy Spirit-fueled love for others. Help us to be informed by your word as we journey through the text. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Bless our tithes. Bless our offerings. Help them to go to the good of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.